Well, good morning. We are glad you're here on this other than sunshiny morning. Uh, with that in mind, if you would like to exit out the foyer rather than these doors with the rain, uh, please feel free to do that today. A couple other announcements. Uh, we're only having one adult Sunday school class today, and that'll be the class downstairs in the, downstairs in the fellowship hall. So if you are planning to stick around for Sunday school, uh, please make your way down to the fellowship hall. We are going to start the nursery. Uh, we're going to get the nursery started up here uh, today at the 11 o'clock service, so that really doesn't help you one little bit right now, but maybe next week you'll come to the 11, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we're going to start that up here uh, today at 11 o'clock. That's for uh, kids' birth through three years old. Usually I think we only go till 2 uh, but uh, for now, we're going to go through age three. No, that is not just for my benefit. Um, I had nothing to do with making that decision, but I will enjoy it. Um, next, we have a business meeting scheduled for August the 23rd, which I believe is next Sunday. And uh, how we're going to roll with it this time around is uh, we're going to have paper ballots in the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, and that way we can get... Uh, both groups together in on that rather than just uh, one service. We'll go ahead and do a paper ballot for that. Uh, more information is uh, in your email, and uh, you can be prepared for the business meeting next Sunday. Um, lastly here, uh, you may have heard that uh, Leroy Besh uh, passed away recently, and uh, the funeral information went out in the Friday email, but just to recap that for you, if you didn't get it or see it, uh, the funeral is going to be out at uh, the Besh Compound. Is that what we're calling it? The Besh Compound. The, e uh, the address is in the email. You can look in the directory um, or ask the family that uh, is sitting over here. Uh, they'll give you directions to that. Uh, Saturday, the 22nd, this coming Saturday, visitations at 10, service at 11, and a luncheon to follow. If there's anyone here that is interested in helping out with the food, either providing some food or helping serve the food, uh, please see Kim, and she will get you squared away, but they would appreciate uh, any help that uh, we have to offer. So if that is something that you would like to do to be an encouragement to the family, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. Would you stand with me, please, if you're able, and uh, we will pray, and then Pastor Mark will come and challenge us from God's Word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace that you show to us each and every day. God, as we are here, I pray that uh, we are here to uh, fellowship together, to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I know that you've been preparing our hearts to hear the word that you would have to communicate to us this day. Give Pastor Mark the words to speak, give him clarity of thought. And as always, God, give us hearts to be receptive, ears to hear and the ability to conform more to the likeness of your son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 27, as we come to the end of, of this book, we remember that, that Paul has come home from his missionary journey back in chapter 21. And getting back to Jerusalem, he encounters uh, some opposition right away, which leads to his arrest, which leads to several trials. Uh, a trial before the governor, Felix, a trial before the governor Festus and before the king Agrippa. And so he had uh, appealed before Festus to, uh, to Caesar, right? And so uh, we, we, we read in the, the recent chapters, uh, the authority said to Caesar, you have asked to go and to Caesar, you will, will go, right? And so they sent him uh, to Caesar. 
And so here in chapters uh, 27 and 28, we find this, um, the, the account of Paul going to, uh, to Rome. Chapter 23, the Lord told him, even in this, this bleak moment of, of Paul's life in chapter 23, that, um, that, that he would go to Rome. The Lord assured him that he would go to Rome. And so uh, he would. And here we're going to see in the past, in the, these last two chapters that he does indeed uh, go there. But we may wonder what, what was so important about Rome. Why did Paul want to go to Rome at all? Well, it, it is said that Rome was considered the center of the earth at that time. And so uh, Paul certainly saw that as a, a strategic location for the advancement of the gospel to all nations. But if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples that you would be my witnesses. And it's a global call, right, to, to all people. And so that the thought of going to Rome is that this would be this, this great place where the world is coming together. People, everything is coming in and out of Rome. And so for there to be gospel proclamation out of Rome uh, was a sh- strategic location that Paul would, uh, would uh, take advantage of. So chapters 27 and 28 uh, describe Paul's travel. And Luke goes to uh, great lengths here. And there's a lot of detail about the travel. Uh, in chapter 27 alone, there's 44 verses on, on his travel. And we might wonder, wh- why, why such a long um, explanation of this journey? Why, why couldn't Luke just say, and then Paul came to Rome, right? And then tell us what happened in Rome. What, what's the, the need for such a lengthy uh, description of this, of this travel? And as we'll see, the, the, the account doesn't... Uh, show us any like evangelistic opportunities. It doesn't show us any uh, revivals that break out. In fact, it's more of a, a geographical um, description than it is any, any necessarily theological matters. And yet, as we look a little more closely, as we slow down a bit, uh, there are other things for us to consider. Uh, in the Old Testament, prophets looked forward uh, to Christ, right? That's what the prophets were doing. And they saw um, the need for Jesus, right? That's what they proclaimed. There's a Messiah and we need him. Uh, Apostles in the New Testament look back to Christ and they talked about the the, the significance of Christ, of of why he has come. And what we find in the Bible is that Jesus is the center of the scriptures. He is the, the climax of the redemptive narrative. And so when Luke here is recording, uh, Paul, he is positioning Paul in this book as the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. And so as we read these last two chapters, he's telling us some things about Paul. Uh, One writer, David Peterson, says, Paul is once more presented as a prophetic figure whose words and deeds testify to the power and grace of God, even in strange and difficult circumstances, Uh, which we're going to find in chapter 27, a pretty strange and difficult circumstance. And uh, maybe we can relate with strange and difficult circumstances. And in this moment, we see see Paul stepping up, speaking up at the time of crisis, showing courage and showing leadership uh, by operating out of faith and not fear. We're going to see God's deliverance of his servant, Paul, in a really, we could say, even a a special or or miraculous rescue. Uh, So 
there is much for us to see about Paul, about God's plan and his purpose and what that applies, how that applies to us. So let's, let's get to it. Uh, we could break up this journey into three sections, or I should say it has been broken up into these three sections, from Caesarea to uh, Mira to Mira to Malta, from Malta to Italy. And we're just going to do the first two this morning. Uh, this journey uh, was said to, under the best conditions, take five weeks, and it took over four for Paul and his uh, in the group that, that he was with. But the first leg we see goes from Caesarea to Myers. So look at it in verse 1. Uh, and when it was decided that we should sail from Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship, uh, 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 in a ship of Adar. At Adam, <laughs> there was about to sail to the ports among the coast of Asia. And we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Uh, first off, what we want to note is that Paul wasn't alone in this journey. He wasn't all by himself. In fact, he had some friends. You might remember that in Luke's account, there's several times in his account where he writes in, in the, using the, the pronoun we, meaning that he was present with, with Paul. Well, here we see the return of the pronoun we. So that means Luke is with Paul on this ship headed to Rome. But he was not the only one that was with him. We also find that there's a man named Aristarchus. And we find this guy mentioned a couple other times in the book of Acts, and in Paul's epistles. So here we see um, probably Luke being Paul's uh, physician. That's why he would be allowed to come. And Aristarchus, his attendant or his, his helper. Uh, but what we want to note this morning is just the picture of friendship that exists in that, in, in just those couple verses. Uh, that, that these two men would risk so much for Paul. They would leave so much for Paul. They'd be willing to partner with someone uh, going this far for the mission of Jesus. Christian friendship is rooted in our friendship with, or our relationship with Jesus, who calls his followers friends. So what is it so special about Christian friendship? How does that even exist? It exists because of our friendship with, with Jesus. And so here we see Paul not being alone. Uh, sometimes we think about uh, Christians who are suffering and and persecuted, and so thankful that there are people who, who stand with one another in those moments. And here we see Paul not alone. But not, Paul not only had his friends, he had a guy named Julius. Now, we don't know much about this centurion. He was guarding Paul. But what we do know about Julius is that he was actually pretty kind to Paul. And we're going to find that, that he gave Paul um, some, some liberty and some freedom and able to go see his friends and to be cared for. But that's not all. We have sailors and we have other prisoners. These prisoners, unlike Paul, were, were going to be certainly tried for, for their crimes and face the penalty thereof. Uh, or, in that day, they would have been brought to the emperor and uh, forced to serve a, in the arena as entertainment for the emperor. So, uh, Paul's, Paul's trajectory was much different than, than theirs, at least initially. Uh, as the journey continued, it became more difficult. Look at it in verse 4. And putting out to the sea, from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because uh, the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and 
Lycia. Uh, so after arriving at, at Myra, Myra uh, the centurion Julius, we find in verse 6, finds another ship going to... Uh, from, from Alexandria going to Italy. And he boards that. Look at it in verse 7. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in Snidus. And this, the wind did not allow us to go further. And we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Verse 8. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of La Cie. So they come to Fair Havens. They finally get there with difficulty. Uh, but they decide that staying there was not a good idea. They, they can't winter in that city. It doesn't seem suitable. Plus, they are behind schedule. Verse 9 says, Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast had, was already over. The fast was the Day of, uh, the, the day of Atonement, uh, which was celebrated end of September, beginning of October. And so what Luke is doing here is he's giving us a timetable. He's giving us a time of when they were traveling. And it's important, or it's notable, because that's a dangerous time to be sailing. Uh, this time from September to November was particularly dangerous. And after November, there was not much, if any, sailing at all because it was so dangerous. And here these men are, are finding themselves sailing during this, this sketchy time. Uh, so given the situation and the dangers, Paul offers some advice in verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the journey will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Uh, so Paul steps up and says he perceives. Well, he's perceiving based on his experience is what Paul is perceiving here. Uh, we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul had endured three shipwrecks and survived them all. So he, he knew a thing or two about sailing. He knew a thing or, thing or two about the dangers of sailing. And so he looks at this situation. He hears what, what uh, they're, they're planning and, and uh, advises uh, them not to go. Uh, this was a bit of a, of a courageous thing, if you, if you think about it. He's a, he's a prisoner, and he's kind of speaking up to the authorities and going against their, their plans uh, for, for the, the, the sailing. Uh, but what we don't see here with Paul's courage is him, him uh, somehow defying the danger, right? Throwing caution to the wind and saying, I'm going to do it anyways, whatever, we're, we're sailing on. No, no, he had a measure of, of wisdom. See, uh, courage does not despise wisdom and it does not dismiss prudence, right? That's called foolishness. And so Paul assessed the situation, recognized the dangers, and determined that it's better if we stay, uh, that there's, there's, there's a reason why we shouldn't go. Nevertheless, at this point, Paul's words are not um, uh, listened to. Look at it in verse 11. The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter there, the majority decided to put in to the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. That was about 40 miles away. Might, if you have really good eyes, you might be able to see that on that map. Um, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So Julius sides with the quote-unquote experts. Right? He's got his experts, the, the, the pilot and the owner. And instead of listening to Paul, the majority of the crew uh, decide to go on. Paul was outnumbered. And yet we're going to find out that Paul was right all along. They should have listened to him. Uh, but just in this brief exchange, we, we do see some insights on, on, on making decisions here, don't we? Uh, there was a, a measure of impatience. They, they felt like they needed to go. They couldn't stay there. They needed to get where they were going. They were behind. And so there's a measure of impatience happening there. Rarely is impatience our friend when we are making decisions. 
right? Um, experts, everybody has their experts, right? In our given moment uh, of, of our culture right now, everybody has their experts about what we should be doing in this moment, don't they? Uh, experts aren't always right. Experts aren't necessarily the way that we make a right decision. Additionally, whereas there's something to be said for consensus, majority opinion isn't always the best way to make decisions. Uh, groups can be wrong. Large groups can be wrong. Many people can be wrong. Nevertheless, they take the majority opinion, they take the experts, and they uh, sail on. Verse 13, and it looks pretty good at first. And when the south wind blew gently, it supposed that they had obtained their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So it's looking pretty good. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind caught the, called the northeastern struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, it gave way to it and were driven along under the lee of a, uh, under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So this gentle wind turns tempestuous. And the Greek word there for tempestuous is where we get our word typhoon. Right? So, so just so we understand what kind of tempestuous wind we're talking about, this is a good thing to be. He calls it a, a northeastern, and you might know that word. You've probably heard of storms called that. And this is the, the, the coming together uh, of, of a, a north and east wind. Right? It's, it's uh, the opposite currents coming together, and that's, that's, a bad, that's a bad thing. It's a bad time to be out on uh, water. And so we find that the wind is driven, or the wind drives the ship off their intended course, and they go some 23 miles south. Um, verse 17, after hoisting it up, that's the boat, they, um, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground at Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently uh, storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. <laughs> Seems pretty bad, huh? They were, they were in preservation preservation mode here. They're, they're chucking stuff over. They're tying the boat together. Uh, they're trying to, to hold this thing together, quite literally, but to no avail, right? The wind wouldn't stop. It kept on going, and they felt as though there was no hope left. And at this point, Paul steps forward. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up and among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred, incurred this injury and loss. Now, this might sound like I told you so, um, which that, that line kind of does sound like I told you so, but Paul keeps going. Look at it in verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, the God to whom I belong, whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. One writer said of Paul that he began as a prisoner and ended as the captain. So here in this moment, all hope is lost. And this prisoner, Paul, steps forward and experienced in many ways and speaks. And he speaks in this moment of crisis, and he speaks this divine message uh, of encouragement and assurance that these sailors, these people so needed at this time. 
Uh, Maybe you felt hopeless. Maybe you've uh, been to the point where you don't see a way out to and you need a word of encouragement. Uh, And Paul, thankfully, has a word for them. And it's not just his words. It's not Paul just blowing smoke at them, making them feel nice. Uh, Paul roots his encouragement in the message that he had received from God. And that's how we encourage one another too. We don't just tell everybody it's going to be all right because we just want everyone to feel like it's going to be all right. We tell people what what God has said. And so Paul's basic news is is this, no one's going to die. The ship's going to be lost, but no one's going to die. Good news. Um, It has been said that a crisis does not make a person. A crisis shows what a person is made of. And here we see that with Paul, right? In this moment where there is much hopelessness, Paul sees the hope. Paul knew the promise. He knew that there needed to be no fear, especially for himself. Uh, He knew the promise uh, that that God had given to him, and so he had great confidence. And and here's the truth for us, right? We we have been given promises by God too. It's not, uh, we're tempted to believe in the promises that God hasn't given to us, right? We want to hold on to those, and then when we don't have those, then we we lose all hope. But if we hold on to the promises that God has actually given to us, if we fight to remember God's faithfulness to his promise and to his people, that's how we can live in faith. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul's courage, uh, his confidence was anchored uh, in four things, and in, in, uh, writer Kent Hughes helps us here with these four things. The first one is the presence of God. Look, in verse 23, it says, For this very night stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong. Now, this wasn't the first time that God had communicated to Paul. We see it back in Corinth in chapter 18, in Caesarea in chapter 23, and in Rome yet to come, 2 Timothy chapter 4. God was telling Paul that he's with him. He doesn't need to be afraid. I'm with you. And here's the great truth for you and me. Uh, When Jesus left this world, he said, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus uh, was talking to his disciples before he left, he told them that I'm going to leave. I'm going to send you another, a a helper, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would be with you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? So there's this great promise that isn't just for Paul, that God was with him, but it's for you and me too. And so Paul took great assurance that, that God stood by him, the angel of God stood by him, uh, communicating to him, assuring him of his presence. But not only his presence, but that he belonged to God. Angel of God to whom I belong. God owned Paul. Paul knew that he was God's possession, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We too are God's possession. That's a measure of great confidence that not only is God with us, but that God owns us, that he holds us together, that we belong to him. That if we're his, as a, as a sheep is to a shepherd, as a child is to a father, so too are we to God. We are his. Verse 3 says, not only to whom I belong, but whom I worship. Paul's confidence is that, that his life was a life of worship. He was on mission for God. We might think of another man who was out on the water and a storm uh, started. His name was Jonah. You might remember that story. Uh, Jonah boarded a ship in order to flee God's call in God's presence. And a storm was 
uh, upon him. Unlike that, here we see Paul following God on mission, following the call, seeking God's presence, seeking to worship him. Very different experience. If, fourthly, Paul's courage was anchored in faith in God. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul's, Paul's faith wasn't rooted in just, it's all going to work out, or I, I hope it's going to be okay. He wasn't just optimistic. He was rooting his, his confidence in God. His faith was in God. And his courage, stemming from God, extended to others, even as things seemed to continue to get worse. Look at it in verse 27. For when the fourth night had come, 14th night had come, as we were uh, being driven across the uh, Adirondack Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding, took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. That's six feet is a fathom. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed the day would come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape, from the ship and had lowered the, the ship's boat, the, the lifeboat, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion the soldiers, the, and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it go. Uh, God had promised deliverance, but the people had a responsibility. And the responsibility was namely, stay in the boat. <laughs> Don't get out of the boat. If you do get out of the boat, there's no assurance of the promise. God's promise did not, and for you and me, does not absolve us from the responsibility to obey. Or as Paul Carter, Pastor Paul Carter says this way, faith in God should never result in human passivity or inaction. So when we say we have faith in God, that doesn't mean we just don't do anything. We, we have faith in God and we act. We do what God has called us to do. We find that Paul's advice was being listened to now. At first, no one was listening to Paul, but now they are. And so the soldiers actually cut away the ropes from the, from the lifeboat. And this was kind of a reckless act, if you think about it. If Paul's wrong, they're on a boat without a lifeboat now. They have no, they're, they're all in. They're all in on, on Paul's plan to get get safely there. Verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Today is the 14th day that you have continued in, in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish on your, uh, from the head of any of you. And when they said these things, they took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Here, Paul, uh, trusting God, took the opportunity to make his faith more visible, right? Here we see him acting as a, as a father or acting as a host, inviting these, these men to eat. And we read this description by Luke of him uh, taking the bread, blessing or giving thanks to God, breaking it and beginning to eat. That, that, that's got to conjure up some things in your mind, right? Uh, Luke is, is making these connections. He's giving this description uh, of a description that you would have heard uh, of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Or of Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. Or Jesus uh, with the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? All these things are conjure up, conjuring up these same images. 
They had not eaten, it says, in, in two weeks due to the stress and fear and seasickness that they would have all experienced. And so Paul invites them to eat. The result is, verse 37, that when they, uh, then they were all encouraged and ate some food. And there were all, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, Paul's, Paul's actions here were not uh, overtly or aggressively evangelistic, right? That's not what we see. We don't see Paul saying, now, believe in God or you're going to go to hell. Like, what he was doing was, was very clearly and appropriately and gently pointing all these people to Jesus, right? He was showing this calmness, this measure of faith, even in the light of such crisis. And after eating, uh, they, as we said, they lightened the ship. By throwing out the wheat. Verse 39. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes, they tied uh, the rudder. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef or a sandbar, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broke up by the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks and on pieces of the ship. And so it was, they were all brought safely to the land. So as they head for land, the, land, uh, the, the ship hits, hits a sandbar. Now they have another problem. The ship starts breaking up. And what are they going to do with all these prisoners? And so the, 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 the jailers or the soldiers think, well, let's kill all the prisoners. Because if they get away, what happens to the, the soldiers, the guards? They get killed, right? So let's kill the, the prisoners so they don't get away, and then we'll save ourselves. And then God's sovereignty is seen here, isn't it? His providence. He uses Julius. And Julius stops them. Why? Because he wants to save Paul. And we know that God's plan is for Paul to get to Rome. And so God is sovereignly over Paul. We said this before, but we are immortal until our work is done. Right? God, God, in unlikely ways, is moving and protecting Paul. And so he does with us. They all get safely to shore. God's promise had been kept. Right? God's promise to Paul to get into Rome was still intact. God's promise to Paul for the ship and for the people was kept intact, safely assured, no loss of life. God had a plan. God delivered Paul in order to keep his plan, in order that his plan might be fulfilled. We may wonder, why does God allow such trials and tribulations in our life? Couldn't God fulfill his plan without the trials and tribulations? Uh, Couldn't there be an easier way for God to fulfill his promises? I mean, Paul was not doing anything wrong, right? Uh, Paul had been a missionary, and then he got arrested for nothing wrong. Then he was tried and found to have nothing wrong. Then he was sent to Rome with no reason to still be a prisoner. And a storm came up, a treacherous storm, a deadly storm came upon him uh, and others. Uh, We might wonder, why, why does this happen? But here's one of the things. We are often tempted to believe that the blessed life is the trouble free life. We in our, uh, in our American Christianity have, have put these two things as synonyms, that somehow being blessed means that you're free of trouble. That is not the experience of the Christian life. That's not the experience of, of anybody in the Bible who followed God. In fact, there was trouble all the time. 
And in fact, in the Bible, it tells us that very thing. That if you wish to live a godly life, you're going to face persecution. There is suffering that's connected to following Jesus. So why the storms? Well, the storms are for our good. Everything is for our good. But God works all of those things, even storms, right, for our good. What's the good? That we might become more like Jesus. That's what Romans chapter 8 is all about. When it says that, that God works all things together for good, or the uh, new, inter, new uh, American standard, that God causes all things to work together for good, what's the good? The good is that we become more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his son. It's chapter, verse 29. But not only the storms for our good, but the, the storms are for others, the good of others. Did you know that? That the storms are for the good of other people too. Think about the people in the ship with, with Paul. That because of Paul's faith, in the midst of that storm, they were saved. So even going through that experience, that storm was for their good. They saw Paul's faith. They saw the hand of God at work. And who knows? Luke doesn't tell us, but who knows? What they heard. If they heard the gospel, if they responded to the gospel, if they saw the faith, they saw the hand of God, they saw the promises of God being fulfilled, it didn't turn to him. But we also know this, that, that storms grow our faith. Right? Storms help us to trust God even more. Kent Hughes says that we are, we are often objective-oriented people. Uh, we want to just get there. But God is process-oriented, meaning he cares about how we get there. So, yeah, God could have just had Paul go to Rome and then continued on. But God cares about the how. Meaning that there's a path that all of us are, are walking. There's a, a voyage that all of us are taking. It's not happenstance. There's, it's, not, it's not an accident that what God is doing on that road is for your good. It's to grow your faith. And the more we come to know God, the more we learn to trust him in all the twists and the turns. James chapter 1 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, storms, test our faith, produce steadfastness. Why? In order that we may become spiritually mature. The goal of the Christian life is not comfort. It's not ease. It's not trouble-free. It's becoming mature. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's growing in godliness. See, Paul's courage did not develop overnight. Some of us, we might look at Paul's situation and be like, man, I don't know if I'd, I'd be ready for that moment. Yeah, maybe, you, maybe you wouldn't be ready for that moment yet. But Paul, Paul had, had experience, right? Paul had years of, of knowing God and growing in God and experiencing God's work in his life. And he was at the, that moment, in that place, ready to take a stand, to ready to walk by faith. Storms, storms come. Storms in life come. Sometimes they come um, sovereignly. They always come sovereignly. Sometimes they come because, not because we did anything wrong. Sometimes they come because we did something wrong. The disobedience of Jonah, for instance. Sometimes they come because someone else has done something wrong. But God uses those, those storms to reveal our faith. And sometimes even our lack of faith. You know, some of those storms that you've experienced, they're exposing something about your faith. They're exposing something about what or who you're trusting in. 
In the Gospels, there's a story about Jesus after he fed the 5,000. He is uh, going up, he goes up to the mountain to pray, and he sends the disciples across the sea. And uh, it's at night, and they're having trouble on the sea. There's a wind blowing against them. And Jesus knows that, and so he goes out, and he's walking on the water towards them, by them. And they see him, and they think he's a ghost of that, and they're afraid. And Jesus says these words to him, them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. There are storms, and the great news for us is that we're not alone in the storm. You're not alone. And if there's a moment where you're, you're worried about that, you, you don't, you're, not, you're not sure about that, hear the words of Jesus again. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. He's with you. He's with you in all the strange twists and turns. He's, he's with you in the tempestuous wind. Right? He's with you when, when it feels like the boat's about to break up. He's with you when all hope seems lost. Even in the worst of the storm, nothing can change the truth that God is with you. Nothing can hide his faith and nothing can hinder his purpose. We're reminded of the words of Romans chapter 8. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or peril or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if you know God today, if you know Jesus as Savior, you can have confidence that he is for you. Not because of your work, but because of the work of Christ. If you're not trusting in Jesus today, then we want to invite you to see this one who came for you, who came to seek and to save the lost. We want to invite you to come to him in repentance and faith, to find hope, to find healing, to find confidence for this life and the next. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks this morning that you are with us. As we've witnessed and heard the story of Paul recognizing his, uh, his faith, recognizing his trust in you in spite of, in light of, because of, in the midst of the storm, God, we give thanks for that example. And we pray that you would give us that faith. Uh, we believe faith is a gift, and so God, we trust you now that as we lead into you, as we look to you, that you would increase our faith. God, we give thanks this morning for the promises of God that we can hold on to. As Paul pointed to the promises of God, as he lived in light of the promises of God, so too may we. And may we give you the praise that you deserve this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.